So we know all scripture is breathed out by God. We know that it's profitable to us, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. But, but we have to ask, in what ways is a book like Genesis useful to us? How does it help us? Since it's not likely that you're going to go to war against an ancient Near Eastern or warlord or, or have to worry about a rival king who wants to marry your wife. And so let me just suggest four ways that you can read an Old Testament narrative like Genesis well. So first, you read a book like Genesis for theology. That is to say, in these stories, we learn something of what God is like. God is revealing his character. He is, he is telling us something about himself. We, we see in these stories that God is a God of holiness. That he's a God who executes judgment against sinful people. We see that God is loving and powerful as he protects his people from their enemies. We see that God is forgiving. He doesn't always give people what they deserve. But he chooses to save and to bring redemption through people who oftentimes don't merit his kindness. And so as we're going along in the book of Genesis in the coming weeks and months, Lord willing, look for ways that God is speaking to us about himself, ways that he's demonstrating uh, his, his character, ways that he's displaying his power through these stories. The, the second of the four ways to read these kinds of narratives is read them for moral instruction. So these stories are meant to have obvious value to us as moral examples. In these stories, you have good guys doing good things, and you have bad guys doing bad things. And even more confusingly, like in today's passage, you have good guys doing bad things and bad guys doing good things, right? But in these stories, we get a sense for how it is we ought to live and how we shouldn't live. So in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about how they ought to live. And he brings up the example of the Israelites wandering in the desert all the way back in the Old Testament. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says this, speaking about the Israelites in the desert. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So we want to read these stories and mine from their riches uh, moral instruction for ourselves. We want, to, we want to look at their examples and either do as they did or, or avoid the same pitfalls. So we read these stories for theology, right, to learn about God, for, for moral examples. Uh, the third way we read these stories is for a sense of redemptive history. So the narratives that we read here in the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Genesis, serve as a foundation for everything that's going to happen in the rest of the Bible. The things that happen in Genesis are going to be echoed and repeated throughout the rest of scriptures, right? We even saw in the passage that Seth read for us earlier about the prophet and the Shemanite woman, right? You have these echoes from the book of Genesis that, that go all the way through the whole Bible, all the way into the book of Revelation. We're going to see themes picked up. We're going to see salvation accomplished in ways that begin to seem familiar to us, right? The events in Genesis will inform the way the law of God uh, is given in Deuteronomy, the things that happen here are going to set up the, the Exodus narrative. 
They're going to have a lot of effect on the period of rebellion and even the exile of the nation of Israel as it unfolds. And behind all of those things, what we'll see is the hand of God guiding the history of his people to bring about their redemption and salvation. So, so read these narratives in order to understand the larger history of God's work of redemption. And then fourth and finally, we read the historical narratives. We read the book of Genesis to find Jesus. So this is where we part company from the way that our, our Jewish friends read what we call the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, flip over to Luke chapter 24. There in verses 44 to 47, we see something that's really important for us as we interpret the Old Testament. Uh, at this point in Luke's narrative, Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised from the dead and he's about to ascend uh, into heaven in a few short weeks. And, and here Jesus is speaking to his disciples after his resurrection. Luke tells us, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So if you catch what Jesus is saying there about the Old Testament, about the Bible, as it was known in those days, right? he's saying that all of that, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, that's kind of three major categories. That's, that's the whole Old Testament. He's saying it is about him. Right? When Jesus opens their minds to understand the Old Testament, it is to show uh, his, his disciples that the Old Testament scriptures speak about him, that they point to his death and resurrection and spread of the gospel. Uh, Jesus says, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And friends, that's not written anywhere in the Old Testament like that. Jesus is saying, when we understand what the Old Testament is about, we'll see that all of those things are there. And so we want to read these Old Testament narratives looking for Jesus, seeing how it is that God saves his people, how it is that God brings about forgiveness for his people, how it is that God wants his people to relate to him. And all of that's going to point us forward to Jesus. So that when we see Jesus coming, we go, oh, okay, I see. Just like David fought against God's enemies on behalf of his people, so now Jesus has conquered our great enemy, sin and death, so that his victory becomes our victory. I see that's what David and Goliath was really about. So with those four things in place, theology, moral example, redemptive history, and Jesus himself, you should be able to profitably and responsibly read these Old Testament books. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just make those four things my outline. So as we consider Genesis 20 and 21, I just want to go through uh, and, and look at each one of those things and see how we see it. I want to switch up the order just a little bit. First, I want to see the moral example of Abraham, right? The moral example. And here the big takeaway is going to be don't lie in order to convince someone to marry your wife. Second, the character of God. Uh, we'll see here that God, as we've been thinking about already this morning, always keeps his promises. Then we'll look and see how this passage fits into the larger picture of God's redemption. We'll look at what Paul tells us in Galatians 4 about what's really going on uh, in, the, in this passage. 
And then at the end, we'll briefly transition to the Lord's Supper by seeing how it is that this passage uh, particularly points us forward to Christ. Okay, so let's look at Abraham's example there in chapter 20. Let's look at his moral example. So we read there. Let me start in verse 1 and go all the way through the end of chapter 20. So Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. When we last left Abraham back in chapter 19, he was looking out over the smoldering ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. As chapter 20 opens, we get a report of his travels since that point. There in verse 1, we see that he travels towards the Negev. This is the, the region in the south. Uh, he finally settles uh, in a place called Gerar in the land of the Philistines. And we see there in verse 2 that the, the king of Gerar was a man named Abimelech. So that might be his name, that, or that might be sort of his royal title. Abimelech means the king is my father. So it's a bit like, like the word prince, I guess. So it seems like this could be a royal title rather than the man's personal name. But anyway, it's the only way he's ever identified. Uh, there in verse 2, uh, Abraham makes it well known that Sarah is his sister. 
And so Abimelech takes her as his wife. And if you've been here for this whole series in the book of Genesis, you might be thinking, are you serious? I mean, Abraham's already tried this little con back in chapter 12 with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and there it ended badly. God had sent plagues on Pharaoh until he finally connected the dots and sent Abraham away with his wife. Now, in Abraham's defense, we probably don't appreciate how vulnerable he felt. He and his family had obeyed the voice of God. They had moved away from the comforts of a life where they were safe and well-known. Abraham even mentions there in verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my father's house. His father's house... This was their family land. They were safe there. They were known. Now they're constantly on the road. They're sojourning in strange lands. They're they're a large enough group that they're going to attract attention, but they're not really large enough necessarily to always defend themselves from hostile forces. And so that explains Abraham's unease. And so in order to prevent someone from killing him, in order to take Sarah as uh, their wife, he had hatched this little she's my sister strategy, right? You see that there in verse 11, right? He, he didn't want to die. And so he kind of made it his plan uh, to, to go through and, and just tell people that Sarah was his sister. There in verse 13, we see, or rather in verse 12, we see there's an element of truth in that, that in fact, we learn that she was his half-sister. In verse 13, we see this actually wasn't an isolated event. It wasn't just this one time in Egypt and this one time now in Gerar, but actually this was sort of their, their regular show on the road, that as they traveled around, that was their bit. They would tell people that Sarah was in fact Abraham's sister. So Abraham was afraid. He tells Abimelech, I was, I was worried because I could tell there was no fear of God in this place, so I thought you might kill me. Now, ironically, Abimelech's terrified of God by the end of this story. There's actually quite a bit of fear. Abraham's the one who's, who's actually full of fear, at, at, uh, not at God, but at, afraid of Abimelech. But it's interesting, fear really isn't an excuse for Abraham's lie, right? It's not really an excuse that he should do this little trick. He should pull this charade every time simply because he was afraid. Right? There's at least three serious problems with what Abraham's doing here. First, it was incredibly cruel to Sarah. Right? Abraham should have been protecting his wife, not, not using her to protect himself at the expense of her safety and well-being. Right? You could imagine that conversation. Look, I want you to say that you're my sister. So instead of killing me, people will marry you, right? right that's, that's a terrible way to treat your wife. Abraham was frightened. So imagine how Sarah must have felt, right? First Peter 3 even praises her, praises Sarah for her ability to trust God in these circumstances when her husband was acting like a fool, right? Peter says that Sarah is actually an example. She's, in a sense, the mother of all women who find themselves having to trust the Lord when their husband is acting in an untrustworthy manner. Right? Abraham is, is treating his wife terribly. Uh, the second thing that's wrong with Abraham's behavior is that he's, he's obviously settled into this habit of being deceitful. Right? And that's bad because it's, it's contrary to God's will. Right? God's not really ambiguous on his position uh, regarding lying versus truth-telling. Right? God tells his people not to lie. But when you scratch the surface and you look a little bit deeper, it's particularly concerning that Abraham, of all people, is so quick to resort to deceit 
in order to keep himself out of potential danger. Right, if you step back, the story of Genesis, and really the story of the Bible as a whole, is a story about a battle. A battle between the descendants of Eve and the, the spiritual descendants of the serpent. Right, the Bible, the book of Genesis, is a story about the conflict that comes between the people of God and the people who are on the side of the devil. And Abraham is no ordinary soldier in this war. He's meant to be one of the generals of God's people, right? Abraham is the chosen one. He is the one through whom all nations will be blessed. Abraham is the one through whom the champion will come. It's Abraham's descendant who will be the one who delivers the final and decisive victory for the people of God. And so here, Abraham, who ought to be a general in the battle against the, the serpent's people, and he's lying, not just once, but repeatedly. And so let me ask you, according to the Bible, who is the greatest, the most accomplished, the most practiced, most skillful liar ever? Well, it's, it's Satan, right? So in John chapter 8, Jesus says this about the devil. He says, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Listen, when he lies, when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, right? What's Satan like? Oh, he's a liar. There's no truth in him. He's the father of lies. And so here in Genesis 20, again, we have the father of the faithful using the tactic of the father of lies. A general in the army of the Lord is borrowing strategy from the enemy. That's the great irony of Abraham's interaction with Abimelech. There in verse 7, the Lord identifies Abraham to Abimelech as a prophet. What does a prophet do? Well, he's meant to speak the words of the Lord. He's a teller of truth. And so the message that Abimelech gets there in verse 7 is, hey, a prophet has deceived you. So Abimelech calls him out there in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, he wonders why Abraham would want to cause him to sin in this way. Again, Abraham, the one through whom blessing was supposed to come to the nations. Here, he's causing the nations to sin by his deceit. Right? In fact, if you didn't know better, if we switched the names, you would think Abimelech was the righteous man and Abraham was on the side of the deceiver. So Christians, on some level, this is written down as an example for us, the Apostle Paul says. This is in the Bible, in part, so that you and I would not do what Abraham does. If you're in Christ, if you're part of God's people, one of the ways that you bear witness to that fact is by being a truthful person in matters large and in matters small. And truthful even when it would serve you really well, it seems, to lie. Right? That's why people lie, you realize. Right? Just because Abraham was afraid didn't make it okay that he lied. And so particularly for us, as the world around us becomes increasingly hostile to our faith, right? as workplaces begin to require things of their employees that, that Christians simply can't do, in those cases, in those times, we might begin to feel afraid like Abraham. 
We might feel like we need to take things into our own hands and make sure that matters turn out well. And we might decide that a few lies, a few shades of the truth, they, they won't really hurt anyone. So who cares if we soften the edges or, or just make ourselves a bit more acceptable to the people who control our paycheck? But Christian, God's people will never accomplish God's purposes by using the enemy's tactics. We do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, and we trust him to defend us and to provide for us. Well, there's a third problem with this lie that Abraham tells. So it's cruel to Sarah. It's unfaithful to God. The third problem with the plan is that it threatens to undermine the Lord's promise. See, Abraham has been told twice back in chapter 17 and again in verse chapter 18, that Isaac, the, the child that's been promised to him and Sarah, that Isaac will be born within a year. And as we're going to see, Isaac is the child through whom the people of God will come into being. And so it's not clear how that can possibly happen if, you know, Sarah's living with another man. Right? Even worse, what if Sarah got pregnant with Abimelech's child? She's supposed to be pregnant with Abraham's child. Everything would be lost. And so here God intervenes. It seems not primarily to correct Abraham's lie, though he does that, and, and not even primarily to protect Sarah, though he does that as well. But God intervenes to protect his plan and to preserve his promise. Abraham has put it at risk, and so God steps in there in verse 3. He appears to Abimelech in a dream. And he says, behold, you are a dead man. But can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Uh, it, it says there that, that Abimelech rose early in the morning in verse 8. I'm like, how did he get back to sleep after that? Right? But there in verse 4, we read the good news that it's not too late. God has acted in time. Abimelech had not touched Sarah. God even, said, uh, God even says that he prevented that from happening. So Abimelech pleads with the Lord for mercy, using language that actually reminds us of Abraham back in chapter 18, pleading for the people of Sodom. He proclaims his innocence. He explains that he was deceived. And I love what God says there in verse 6. Basically, he says, I know, dummy, I'm the one who kept you from touching her. In verse 7, he says, look, your life will be spared if you give Sarah back and ask Abraham to pray for you. In verses 14 and 16, Abimelech gives Sarah back to Abraham, gives him gifts and land, makes it clear to everyone that he has not touched her. And at the end of chapter 21, we see the conclusion of, of their relationship and interaction. There in chapter 21 at the end, in verse 22, Abimelech seeks a treaty with Abraham. He recognizes, like, look, you might not be a good guy, but God is on your side. And so I, I need you to be on my side. In verse 23, he, he asks Abraham... Uh, he says uh, in chapter 21, verse 23, Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Right? Seriously. Right? He's like, look, Abraham, no more lies. Uh, Abraham maneuvers there to make sure that the ownership of a certain well that was uh, in dispute is included in the deal. They swear an oath together. And chapter 21 ends with Abraham established in that land for many days. And so after all this, there is a happy ending. The plan and the promises of the Lord will not be undone by the sins of his people. And that brings us to our second point, and that is what do we learn about the Lord 
from this passage. So we see the, the ethical example of Abraham, the liar. Now what do we learn about God? Well, I think the main takeaway for us is that God is, as we've seen this morning already, always faithful to keep his promises, no matter what the obstacles, no matter how it appears at any given moment. As we've just seen, he intervenes to thwart Abraham's fearful stupidity, to protect his promise, And that brings us to chapter 21, where we read this, starting in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. Now, if you've been following along in the book of Genesis, this is, this is such a happy thing. Right? You feel so glad for Abraham and Sarah after everything, after all of their failings and faults and, and uh, after all the false starts. Finally, Abraham, or Abraham and Sarah have a child. Moses, our author, frames it there in verse 1 in terms of God's faithfulness. God did exactly what he had promised. It's enough to make you laugh for joy. Right, in fact, in chapter 17, Abraham did laugh at the idea that God would give him a, a child through an old, barren woman like Sarah. In chapter 18, Sarah herself laughed at the idea. Now that it's actually happened, they, they laugh in a different way. They name the child Isaac, which means he laughed. Sarah says, I'm laughing. There in, in verse 7, it's, it's, it's senses like everyone's going to laugh when they hear about this. This is such a wonderful thing. Now, that might seem like a nice, happy story. But it's interesting, as the the Bible continues on, you see that God seems to go back to this well over and over again. Think about all of the impossible births that we see in the scriptures. So Isaac's own wife, Rebekah, will, will be barren. We read in Genesis 25, 21. But the Lord opens her womb. And she gives birth to Esau and Jacob. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was barren, according to Genesis 29, 31. But the Lord opens her womb, and she gives birth to Joseph. In Judges 13, verse 2, we read of an unnamed Israelite woman who was barren, unable to have children. But the Lord heard her cry and the cry of her husband, and she gave birth to Samson. In 1 Samuel 1, 2, we read of a childless woman named Hannah. She cried out to the Lord. He allowed her to conceive and bear a son named Samuel. Moving into the New Testament, we, read, uh, we meet a woman named Elizabeth. We read about her earlier in our service in Luke chapter 1. She is barren and very old, according to Luke 1.7. God hears her prayers and the prayers of her husband and gives them a child, John the baptizer. And then finally, we meet a woman named Mary. Her story is a bit different. She's actually not barren, but she is the only other kind of woman who can't have children, and that she's a virgin. And of course, she conceives by the Holy Spirit and gives birth to Jesus. 
You see, it's not just Sarah. God is pleased to act in this way over and over and over again at some of the most crucial points in his plan of salvation. These children aren't just normal children. They play an important role in God's plan of redemption. So what do we make of this? Why does God keep acting in this same way over and over again? Or does he just run out of ideas for like interesting plot points? Does he need an editor and kind of like switch up the, the, the drama a little bit? Well, I think God is pleased to bring about his salvation in these ways because this is one way that it is abundantly clear that he alone is the one who's at work. Right? These impossible births, barren women, elderly women, even a virgin, these impossible births show that God will bring about his redemption in ways that demonstrate his power and his faithfulness. God is going to save his people in ways that only he can accomplish so that we'll know that he alone is the one who's done it. Remember last week we saw Sarah laugh in disbelief at the idea that she would have a child. And the Lord responded by asking her rhetorically in chapter 18, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? The birth of Isaac here in chapter 21 is a resounding answer. No. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord. You can overcome circumstances that utterly confound human beings. You can bring blessing out of hopeless situations. You can turn the most painful circumstance in my life into a source of laughter. God had promised Sarah a child. Of course, there's no way that could happen. But God is always faithful. He always keeps every promise that he ever makes. Unlike Abraham, he never lies. He never fails. He never makes a mistake. And so, brothers and sisters, we can trust him. Just think about all of the promises that God has made to us in Christ. He's promised to always be with us, present by his Holy Spirit. He's promised to orchestrate every detail of our lives for good. He's promised to give us abundant life and to make streams of living water to flow out of us. He's promised us eternal life with him in a perfect world, in glorified bodies, free from sin, free from pain, free from tears. As we'll see going through 1 Peter in the evenings, he's promised us an inheritance, unfading, undefiled, imperishable, kept for us in heaven. Right? We could keep going. The word of God is full of his promises to his people. And you can know for certain that God will bring all of those things to pass because he's perfectly faithful and completely powerful. And so ask yourself, what circumstances in your life tempt you to a laugh of resignation when you hear them, when you hear the promise God makes to you? What, what things make it seem impossible that God would actually do the things he said he will do? Whatever it is, remember that it is God's way to do the impossible. It is God's way to wait until the situation looks hopeless before he acts so that you'll know that he's the one who's done it. 
Remember what Sarah and Abraham learned here, that God is always faithful to his promises. That brings us to our third point, which is what this passage teaches us about the history of redemption. What it is that God is doing to bring about the salvation of his people. So if you look there in chapter 21, in verses 8 to 21, speaking of Isaac, it says there in verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So now Isaac is a couple years old and we have a problem. Do you remember a few chapters back where Abraham and Sarah panicked? They didn't trust the promise of God, and they concluded that, that God meant to fulfill his promise to Abraham through, through Hagar, his servant. Well, the child that was born, Ishmael, is still in the picture. He's still in the house. And so when he laughs, there's that word again in verse 9, Sarah insists that he be sent away along with his mother. She says, Ishmael cannot be heir alongside of Isaac. Abraham is understandably upset. Surely he loved his son. But there in verse 12, the Lord tells him to listen to his wife. And again, it's the importance of Isaac as the child of promise that explains it. God tells him, look, you've got to send Ishmael away. Listen to your wife because it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. God wants it to be very clear that Abraham's descendants are his descendants through Isaac. The promise is made to that line, not to Ishmael's. Then verse 13, the Lord promises that he will care for Ishmael, that he will even make him a great nation as well. There in verse 14, the mother and child are sent off into the desert with, frankly, insufficient provisions. Things go poorly as you'd expect. The water runs out, death appears inevitable, and so Hagar goes off a bit away so she doesn't have to watch her son die. And as she wept, the Lord heeded the boy's cry 
and opens their eyes so they can see a well of water. Ishmael lives in the wilderness. He marries an Egyptian woman. We won't hear much about him again until Abraham dies and he comes back to help, him, uh, help Isaac bury him. But we will see that he has quite a few descendants and the Lord is faithful to do what he said. So what on earth does that teach us about God's plan of redemption? Well, frankly, I have no idea. Or at least I wouldn't have any idea if it weren't for the Apostle Paul many, many years later. After Jesus' birth, after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us exactly what is going on here. Listen to what Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's saying, have you not paid attention to the book of Genesis? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, so Paul is writing here in the book of Galatians to people who are tempted to have a desire to be under the law. So in the context of Galatians, that means people who want to be made right with God by Jesus, but also by their obedience to God's law. So all through Galatians, the Apostle Paul is making the point that we're made right with God. We're justified before him only by faith in Christ. That, that we don't have to obey the Old Testament law in order to earn God's love. And actually, Paul's saying that if you try to earn God's favor and approval through your good works, if that's the, the basis on which you hope to stand before God, Paul says, you have nothing. So here Paul's addressing those in the Galatian church who, who have this tendency, this desire to want to make themselves right with God by obedience to the law. And so in order to teach them, Paul reminds them that Abraham actually had these two sons and that there was a great difference between them. On the one hand, you have Ishmael, according to Paul, born of a slave woman. And then on the other hand, you have Isaac, born to a free woman. Ishmael, Paul says, was born according to the flesh. That is to say, Abraham took matters into his own hands. He had a baby with Hagar according to the ways of flesh, the way that people are normally born. There was nothing miraculous, nothing extraordinary, nothing of the promise of God in the conception and birth of Ishmael. But Isaac, Paul reminds us, was born through promise. 
There is no explanation for Isaac's existence except that God had promised that he would be born. And God made it happen. And Paul reminds his readers, there is always conflict between these two groups. Paul mentions Ishmael persecuting Isaac there in verse 29 of Galatians 4. It seems he's referring back to to Ishmael's laughter in Genesis 21.9. Apparently that laughter wasn't innocent. It was was malicious. It It was mocking. And so Paul says in verse 30 that Sarah was right to throw them out because she understood that these two groups could not live at peace. That it has to be clear that that the promise of God goes through Isaac. And so Paul says something surprising in verse 24 of Galatians 4. He says these two women, Hagar and Sarah, with their two children, Ishmael and Isaac, can be understood to represent spiritual truths. Hagar, Paul says, represents Mount Sinai, where the law of God was given. She represents all of our attempts to earn God's favor and approval through our obedience to the law. When you think of what happens to people who try to please God this way, Paul's saying, think of Hagar and Ishmael dying in the desert. But Paul tells the believers, you're not them. You're like Isaac. You're children of the promise. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that Genesis 21, the story of Ishmael and Isaac, it really tells us something important about God's salvation. And it tells us something really important about ourselves as followers of Christ. Paul's saying that this this incident back in Genesis 21 shows us that God's salvation comes from him. It's not something that human beings can take into their own hands. It's not something we can accomplish by our own means. That's why Isaac had to be born by a miracle. The only reason Abraham and Sarah were able to have a child is because God had promised it to them. They had no resources, no power, no means to make it happen. And in fact, when they did take matters into their own hands, all they got for it was Ishmael. He might have been a nice enough person, but he wasn't the child of promise. He wasn't the one through whom God would bring his salvation. God wasn't going to cooperate with with Abraham. He wasn't going to let Abraham do half the work and then he would do the rest. No, the promise has to come through the work of God. The story shows us also something about ourselves as Christians. Paul says that if you're in Christ, you are, like Isaac, a child of the promise. That is to say, you are right with God. You are in God's family because God has made it so. God has done everything necessary to make you his child, just as he did everything necessary to bring Isaac into the world. Friends, that's great news for us. It it means that we are every bit as precious to the Lord as Isaac was to Abraham. Isaac didn't have to do anything in order to earn Abraham's love. Abraham loved him because he was the child that had been promised to him. Brothers and sisters, this means that we can't mess our salvation up. Because it's never depended on us in the first place. It means we don't have to strive. We don't have to earn in order to be right with God. We simply receive his promise as his adopted children. And friends, that brings us to Jesus, the last thing for us to see this morning as we come to the Lord's table. 
We come to a passage like this and we wonder, where exactly do we see Jesus? How does this passage inform or deepen our understanding of God's salvation through the death and resurrection of his son? But we see in chapter 21, the birth of a promised son. And we see also God's great mercy on the cast out son. And roughly 2,000 years after these events took place, God sent another promised son, a greater promised son, his own son, born as we've seen through a miracle, come to bring the promise made to Abraham to its ultimate fruition to bring salvation to all the nations. Jesus, descended from the line of Abraham, descended from the line of Isaac, God's own son, enjoyed the delight of his father in heaven, every bit as much as Isaac enjoyed the delight of his father Abraham. But there's a shock in Jesus' life. Because Jesus didn't get to live like Isaac. Instead of being fawned over and delighted in like Isaac, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was betrayed by a friend. By the plan of God, he was condemned by his enemies, handed over to the Gentiles, and murdered on a cross. Instead of being treated like the promised son, Jesus was treated worse than Ishmael. He was cast off into the wilderness. But God was merciful to Ishmael. Unlike Hagar's son, the Lord Jesus received no mercy. When he thirsted on the cross, there was no divine provision of a well to save him. You see, when God sent his promised son, he didn't send him to enjoy blessings, but rather to take our curse upon himself. Because we've all rebelled against God, we are all like Ishmael. We are, we are all outcasts. We all don't belong in the, the family of God. We are strangers to God's promise. God promises salvation, but, but you and I, because of our rebellion against God, we are not qualified. It doesn't apply to us. We have no hope, no prospects, any more than Ishmael did dying in the wilderness. But Jesus, the promised son, bore the full penalty for our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus took on himself all of our sin, all of our shame, everything that keeps us from the family of God, everything that disqualifies us from God's promises. But that's not even the end of the story because Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. So friend, now he is alive at this moment. And he offers salvation to anyone who will come to him. Friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, today you can become a child of the promise. You can't make it happen through your own effort, through your own goodness, through your own cleverness. Human effort alone can't bring about this result. But friend, God can and he will. Today Jesus offers you forgiveness for all your sins. He offers you adoption into God's family, the sure promises of eternal life with him in heaven. And friend, God is a God who always keeps his promises. The only way you can have them is by trusting in Jesus. 
And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we come to the Lord's table in faith this morning. We remember his shed blood and his broken body. And we rejoice in, we exult in that great love that our Heavenly Father has for us as his children. We come to the table basking in the delight that our Father takes in us because of Christ. We come to the table recognizing the price that he paid so that we who were far off could be made children of the promise. So let's pray together, and then we'll sing, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you for your great faithfulness. Who is like you, a God who speaks things into existence, who promises the impossible and then delivers in ways far beyond our imagination? Who is a God like you, setting his love on faithless, deceitful, unbelieving people like us? Oh God, we love you. We are the children of your promise. We have been brought into your family by the power of your Holy Spirit through union with your beloved Son. And so we delight in you. We rejoice in your love, and we pray that you would help us to glorify you, to trust you in all that we do. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.